Amen. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Although as I hear it, I wonder, are we listening to the book of Acts or an Edgar Allan Poe short story? It's a tough story. This is kind of scary stuff, isn't it? Well, let me tell you what I learned this week as I looked at this passage, that there is a very relevant main point to this story. The main point here is very relevant to us in the culture in which we live. But many times we don't hear that main point of the story because there are so many problems we have with the text. There's so many things we don't like about this text that we have trouble hearing what the main point is. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. I just want to make a deal with you. I want to cover some of the many problems we have with the text that keep us from hearing. Let's, let's talk about those. Let's just name them and talk about them. And then let's get to what the main point is and allow the scripture to teach us this very relevant main point for where we live and move and have our being, okay? So let's do that together. First, let's talk about the many problems in this text. And let's just start with the obvious, God struck two people down, dead, right? That's disturbing, you know, this sounds like a story that you might expect in the Old Testament. You know, in the Old Testament when God was a God of wrath and of judgment. But it doesn't sound like the New Testament God, right, that's loving and accepting. It's the way we often think about it, isn't it? Well, evidently, the God of the New Testament still judges people too. We're right here in the New Testament in the book of Acts, right? And this wrath of God, this judgment of God stuff is disturbing. And as, as Ananias is confronted by his sin, he died. And Sapphira, it seems to be even worse, Peter predicts her death. Notice that he didn't cause it. He didn't call for it from God. He just predicted it. Now, now maybe they, just had, they both had weak hearts and it's just a coincidence that they both fell down dead when confronted by their sin. But I don't think so. This appears to be real, 
wrath of God, judgment of God for sin types of stuff. And as soon as we hear that, listen, we have problems with that in our culture, don't we? I mean, maybe when you hear that, your reaction is you think to yourself, you know, this is what I hate about, let's just, preachers, right? It's what I hate about preachers, always telling us this God is angry with us, always putting us on a guilt trip, making us feel that bad about our sin, so that preachers can manipulate us and control us. We hear that in our culture. Maybe that's the voice you hear in your head when you hear this. And many folks, when they hear this text, will say, look, you know, the God I believe in is a God of love and not a God of wrath and of judgment. And so I I don't want to hear this. I don't want to accept this. I don't want to hear this kind of preaching. Maybe that's how you respond when you hear the text today. And if so, I'm so glad you're here because in many ways, my heart reacts that way. I met with Lee Taylor to plan worship on Wednesday morning. I said, I don't want to preach this text. I don't want to preach this. I don't like to think about this. And if you don't respond that way, if that's not the response of your heart, I can promise you that there is somebody in your office, there is somebody you go to school with, there is somebody in your neighborhood, there is somebody you know who would respond this way to the text. And so it's important that we wrestle with this and we talk about this claim. The God I believe in is a God of love and not a God of wrath and of judgment. How do we handle that? What do we do with that? If we're going to have intellectual integrity and consistency, let's not just tear this page out and skip over it. Let's learn what God has for us to learn this. What do we say about that? I have a few thoughts. Number one, I think we have to affirm that God is a God of love. As we interact with people, we always want to start on common ground with them, right? And then build a point to another place if we're going to another place. And so if people are saying the God I believe in is a God of love, good. God is a God of love. The God I believe in is a God of love too. And that's the message of the Old Testament. I think of Psalm 103 down there in about verse 8, right? That says the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Or 1 John 4 and verse 8, right, where it actually says God is love. That is the message of the Bible and the Old Testament and the New. And so I think we have to begin by saying, I agree with you. God is a God of love. Second thought. I think we have to say that love is not God's only attribute, right? That makes sense, doesn't it? We're humans. We're creatures. We're created by God, and we have many other attributes besides love. There are many other emotions that characterize us, right? And so if if we are not as complex as God, and we can have a variety of responses, God, who is a person, is going to be more complex than to just have one attribute as well. I think we can agree on that. And so I think we have to say love is not God's only attribute. In fact, 1 John, we looked at 1 John 4, 8 where it says God is love. But, you know, in chapter 1 of 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, we read God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Talking about God's purity, talking about his holiness, that is an attribute of God's as well. And as we look other places in the scripture, I think of um, Isaiah, or yeah, here's a good one, John 4, 24. God's a spirit, and his worshipers worship in spirit and truth. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, when he sees God, he said what we sang this morning, right? 
He said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The angels around God are saying that, right? Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And that's not just an Old Testament concept, right? If you look in Revelation 4, the angels are still in the New Testament saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, which is in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer to Hebrews down in about verse 29 says, our God is a consuming fire. Because in his holiness and in his purity, there is no darkness in his presence. And when the light comes in, it destroys the darkness. Our God is so holy that he consumes things that are not holy in his presence. And so I think as we think about that, we say, yes, God is a God of love, but love is not God's only attribute. And we list some of these other ones from the scripture. I think we have to ask ourselves and we have to ask other people this question. What do you do with the other attributes of God that he reveals about himself in the scripture? What do you do with those? Right? I mean, does God get to define himself or do we only get to define God? And that's a big deal in our culture to be able to define ourselves. I Googled that, got 116 million responses to define myself, right? That's an important deal. And so certainly if God is a person, we have to allow him to define himself. And I believe he does that through his word and the scripture and through the world that he has created. And as God defines himself, I think it's important for us to say, look, God is love, but I'm not sure whatever our culture defines as love is necessarily true of God when he says God is love, right? We have to let God define what that means and what he means by that. Because you see, when we hear a God of wrath, a God of judgment, and we say, I don't believe in that, I believe in a God of love, we're reacting to something. We're reacting to our ideas of what anger is. Probably based on what we've experienced, we've experienced anger. Especially by those who are in authority, those who are over us. And we often attribute that to God, just as we attribute our ideas about love to him. And because our idea of anger is, is something that is, that is capricious, what do I mean by capricious? It's, um, it's erratic, right? It, it, it's unpredictable. Um, instead, maybe that's the way we've experienced anger, that we want to apply that kind of anger to God and then attribute to God what we define as love, but, but the next step in this thought process, right? God is a God of love. He has more than one attribute. What do you do with those attributes, right? Are we going to let God define himself? I believe it's clear as I read the scripture and God informs us, I think we, what we see from the scripture is that God's anger is not mutually exclusive with God's love. Now, what do I mean by that? God can be a God of anger and of wrath and judgment and a God of love and of mercy and of grace. Both of those things can be true. They're not mutually exclusive with one another. In fact, it seems to me as I read the scripture, God is angry precisely because he is a God of love. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's think about that together. Let's take it out of the context of God. Just think about your attitude towards someone that you love. 
okay? Think of someone that you love. And I, I wonder, maybe you have to imagine this. Maybe this is not hard for you to imagine. But have you ever loved someone who was destroying himself or herself? Have you ever loved one, somebody, maybe they were caught up in an addiction. Maybe they were in a destructive relationship that was not good for them. Maybe they were involved in some kind of destructive behavior. When you see this person that you love caught up in something like that, what happens if you love that person? You get angry, right? Anyone who loves a person and then sees the lies or the evil that is destroying that person, we get angry and we begin to say things. Maybe you said something like this. Maybe you said, don't you see what you're doing to yourself? Don't you see what this is doing to you? Every time I see you, you are less of yourself than you were before. And we get angry because of our love for that person. Because we want them to be all that they were designed to be, all that they're capable of being. We get angry at the lies that they believe and at the evil that eats away at them. Now, if we respond that way in anger toward those things that are harming those we love, how much more... Would God respond in that way, right? If you and I love somebody and we get angry when they're not living the way that they should live or we're not living to their potential or they're not being all that they were created to be, don't you think a perfectly moral, perfectly holy God who sees everything, we don't even see it all, but he sees everything and who loves even more than we love. Do you see how he would get angry at what lies and evil would do to his beloved creation when he sees so clearly what we were designed to be? Listen to me. Listen. God's anger is his steady resolve against anything that harms his people and his creation. It's not erratic. It is not unpredictable. It is, as we sang earlier, steadfast. Listen to me. God is steadfast in his resolve against anything that harms you and the lies that we believe. The ways that we sin and the ways that we're sinned against turn us into something that we were never intended to be. God loves you. He sees the lies that you believe. He sees the evil that is destroying you, and it makes him angry. And God has great anger at your sin because God has great love for you. His anger is not mutually exclusive with love. Real love always entails anger. Real love always produces anger at sin. So i got to ask you. Are you angry at your sin? Do you have somebody in your life who is angry at the lies that you believe, at the evil that is keeping you from being all that God created you to be? Listen, the God we worship is a God of love. That is absolutely true. But the fact that our God is a God of love does not make our sin acceptable. But the fact that our God is a God of love does make our sin forgivable. It does make our sin redeemable. 
And it does make our sin changeable because God is committed with a steady resolve to root out anything in our lives that keeps us from being what he created us to be. It's Romans 8, 28, right? He's going to use all things for our good. And you keep reading so that we're conformed to the image of Christ, so that we look more like Jesus. There are other problems we have with the text. If we can get past God's wrath and his judgment, as if that's not a big enough thing, right? We see stuff like verse 32. All the believers were one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of possessions was his own, but they shared everything that he had. Is he going to tell us that we're going to live in a commune now and that I don't get to keep my stuff? What does it say in verse 34? There was no needy a person's among them from time to time. They owned lands and houses, sold them. And brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. Is he going to say I have to sell my stuff and bring it up here to the church? To do what? To be distributed to anyone as he had need. You know, the bad stuff is scary in here, but the good stuff, that beauty of their community, that's pretty scary too, right? Sounds like Marxism, right? From each according to his ability to each according. Isn't that Marx? Sounds like communism, sounds like socialism. And there are people who point to things like this and say the Bible is a socialist document. If you're a good Christian, why aren't you socialist? It's not what this is saying. We talked about this a few weeks ago. You can look at it more in depth if you go back and look at the sermon from September the 15th on Acts 2, 42 to 47. Briefly, let me just say here. The Bible recognizes that we own things, private property rights. Exodus 20, thou shalt not steal, right? You can't take something that belongs to somebody else because it belongs to somebody else. There's private property rights. But you don't have to look in the Old Testament. You see it right here in this text. Look at chapter 5 and verse 4. What does Peter say to uh, Ananias? Didn't it, the land, belong to you before it was sold? It belonged to him, private property rights. And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? It's your money. You can do what you want to with it, right? The Bible recognizes property rights. So it's not socialism. It's not Marxism. It's not coming, but it's something. What is it? What it is is that these people were so full of the Holy Spirit that they loved and that they gave and they were assured of God's love and protection of them. So they were willing to give their stuff away to help people who were in need. Verse 33 says it right here. What does it say? Much grace was upon them all because God had given them so much that they realized they didn't deserve, that they were able to give to other people, not because they deserved it, but just because they needed it. Look, this isn't Marxism. You own your own stuff, right? But it indicts not our politics or our economic theory. This indicts our hearts. Do you love your brothers and sisters in need more than you love your stuff? Ooh, that's scary, isn't it? Do you own your stuff or does your stuff own you? Do you have a desire to share with and provide for brothers and sisters in need? If you have a need, are you willing to tell us that you have one? In a community, if you don't share your needs, we're not able to share our things to help you if you don't let us know that there's a need. And that keeps us from operating as the body of Christ. And listen to me, I want to be clear, because the takeaway a lot of times people have from that is, if I'm not that way, if I'm not willing to give, if I'm not giving sacrificially, then I just got to give more. 
And maybe you need to. I don't know. That's between you and the Lord. But the takeaway, the application is, if that's not my heart, listen, the application is, then I need more of the Holy Spirit. Because that's how they did this. They were full of the Spirit. The application is, if, if I'm afraid to share with other people what my needs are, I need more grace. Right? Much grace was upon them, chapter 4, verse 33 says. I need to realize that nothing I have is my own. That everything I have I've been given. That nothing, I don't deserve any of these things. I don't come and ask because I deserve it. I come and ask because I need it. And being people full of the Holy Spirit and much grace of God being on us allows us to turn loose of things and use them more generously. That's the application here. Ooh, that's some scary stuff in this text, isn't it? That's a lot of tough stuff. I'm not even sure I want to know the main point. If those weren't even the main points, that's enough for me, right? The problems are clear and they jump out at us. But I want you to see the main point. It is subtle. I mean, I, it was late in the week before I got to it, all right? Because I'm digging through all these other things. Oh, no, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to say about that? But I started looking at this saying, well, what did they actually do wrong? What's the judgment of God falling on? What's the main point that I'm supposed to take away from this now that I've gotten through these other things that were plaguing my mind? And at first I thought, well, he's just talking about greed, right? They didn't give stuff away, but that's not what Peter seems to talk about. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, Ananias, how is it Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? And then again in verse 4, he repeats it. Now at the end he says, you have not lied to men, but to God. Peter's concern seems not to be with greed or with stuff, but he is condemning some form of deception in their lives, right? Because he says, you lied two times. Now, we don't know exactly what happened here, right? We're not told if Ananias and Sapphira had promised to give 100% of the proceeds to the church and then they decided not to. Or if they just gave the impression that they were going to be totally sacrificial and then they didn't. We don't know exactly what happened. But at some point we see that they gave the appearance of doing one thing, total sacrifice, but the reality was something different. They held something back, right? What's going on here is they have some public face that they present to everyone, and it doesn't match the private reality. What's being condemned here is hypocrisy, right? That there's a disconnect between what they show everyone and what's actually true. So I started thinking about hypocrisy. And before this sermon, I really thought of hypocrisy as you don't practice what you preach, right? And then I started thinking about it, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm the biggest hypocrite in the world, right? Because you can go online and find 350 sermons that I've preached about stuff that, that I, do, I fall short on, right? But I started thinking about that definition, not just to get myself off the hook, but I started thinking about, you know, there, you know it's not bad to praise a virtue that we don't meet, that we fall short of. In fact, that's a good thing. To hold up what's right even when we don't meet it. And I don't think that's hypocrisy, right? Someone who's an addict and addicted to who says, don't do what I do, that's not hypocrisy. I don't meet the standard of sobriety, but I fall short of it. But I want you to meet it. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is, here's the standard and I meet it when in reality I don't. 
Hypocrisy is giving the appearance of one thing, but the reality being something else. It's my public face not showing the private reality. It's that disconnect between what I show everyone and what's actually going on. And i got to tell you, it's that pretense. It's that faking it. It's that deception that God hates. Read Matthew 23 sometimes. Jesus goes off on hypocrites. And he's defining what it is that God doesn't like. He says, everything they do is done for people to see. And when Ananias and Sapphira did that, they fell down dead. So what is God doing here? Back to point one. He's angry at sin to protect what he's created, right? God is protecting his church. This is a new church that could be destroyed by hypocrisy. Because when there's no real honesty, there can be no real community. If we have no real integrity, then there's no real connection. We're connecting with a fiction, with something that is fake. And so God acts to protect his church from a dangerous sin. We learned on our trip this summer. Lisa said, what are you going to use that stuff that we learned this summer, right? Well, we learned this summer that the word hypocrite actually comes from the Greek theater. We were there in Greece. We were there in Athens. And the word hypocrite actually comes from the Greek theater, because if you're familiar at all with the Greek theater, what does it mean? The, the people who played a part, the actors, they played a part, they had a mask. And what they showed to the public was different than what was behind the mask, right? You show one thing to the world, but you're secretly hiding the real you. So I have a mask with me today. It's not an ancient Greek. If you're listening on the podcast or the internet, it's not an ancient Greek mask. It's just your basic uh, smiley face emoji, right? But we do this, don't we? We're so guilty of this. Think about it. We live in a culture where we're real, really friendly to one another. In the, in the southern, southeastern United States, we're friendly, and I think that's good. And we say, hey, how are you doing? You know what we say? Oh, I'm fine. I'm doing well. And if you're listening, I'm holding up my mask, my smiley face mask. If we're not careful, we can put up a public face that's different than the private reality. Now, I'm not saying we got to tell everybody every one of our sins, but maybe we could be a little more honest. I, don't, I mean, I've been, how are you doing? Well, I've been struggling to tell you the truth. Or I had a law partner that always answered that question, better than I deserve, right? How are you doing? Better than I deserve. I think that's a good definition of grace. I think that's true of all of us. But I think that's important for us to say because we walk around in a culture holding up masks saying everything is fine. We're doing great. How are you and your family doing? Fine, great. And behind the mask, we struggle with anxiety. We struggle with addictions. We struggle with depression. We struggle with pornography. We struggle with our own anger. We're struggling in our marriage. We are struggling in our parenting. We are struggling with our health. And we hold up this public face and say, I'm fine. I'm good. We do it with success, don't we? How are things going to work? Oh, man, they're going really well. I'm knocking the top out of it. Top sales guy, right? 
And we have this public face for the world. I've got a big house. I've got nice cars. I've got nice things. But a lot of times the reality is I've run up debt and credit cards. All because I want to have this face that I show to the world that's different than the public reality. Why can't we just say, I'm really struggling at work right now. Things aren't going well. The one that kills me is we do it with disappointment. When hard things happen, right? When a member of your family dies. When a couple has a a miscarriage and they were expecting to have a child and then they don't. You know what we say? Oh, I'm doing fine. We're doing okay. We're all right. Why can't we say we struggle? Man, when I didn't get that job, when I didn't get that promotion, when I didn't get that part... It hurt. And I don't even know if I want to start talking about social media. I mean, is that not the definition of holding up the world, what I want them to see while the reality being something separate? We were redoing a room this summer, and Lisa finds these things on Pinterest. Like, there's this playroom that is pristine with all these intricate organizational things. She's like, I want a playroom like that. And I said, Lisa, kids don't play in that playroom. That is a staged area. Put some kids in there for 10 minutes, and it'll look like our playroom. Right? That's not real. And we do that with social media. We put up this face that is not at all the reality. And we assure each other. We try to convince ourselves that everything is all right. And we hide behind masks. And we play a part. And we all show one thing. But secretly, something is different. The question should not be, why does God strike down Ananias and Sapphira? The question is, why are more people in the church not falling down dead under the judgment of God like Ananias and Sapphira? That's the question we ought to ask. But I have an answer to that question. The reason we don't fall down dead under the judgment of God is because the judgment of God fell down on Jesus in my place. Because the judgment that my hypocrisy deserves fell on Jesus. The one who never wore a mask. The one who had no guile, he had no deceit in him. In fact, they dressed him up like he was pretending to be something. And they put a crown of thorns on his head, and they put a purple robe on him, and they mocked him. But the reality was, he really was the king of glory. He really was the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And he didn't say a word to defend himself. Like a sheep, he went to the slaughter. He didn't do anything to defend his own reputation because he was taking the punishment for my hypocrisy and for yours. And they led him to a cross. And I think about my life and I wear a costume of my own making that I never live up to it. And if you question it, I get defensive of my reputation When Jesus, our king, was willing to set aside his reputation and set aside defense of his name so that we could be called by his name, so that we could have his reputation. We sang about it this morning, right? That Jesus was despised and rejected by men so that we could be loved and accepted by God. 
Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace. That's grace. That's mercy. It's the good news of the gospel. (laughs) The God I believe in is a God of love. Amen. Yes, I agree. Watch this. I'm turning a corner on you now, okay? Watch this. Since Jesus took the blame for my sin, that means I can be honest about my sin. I don't have to hide it any longer. The condemnation fell on him for that. And so when I get to the main point of this story, you know what the main point here is? The main point is this. The church is not a community for acting like we have it all together when in reality we don't have it all together. You've got to be honest about that. Let's be honest with ourselves and with the world. Let's put away the masks. This is no place for masks. Not in this community where God wants authenticity and intimacy and real relationships. Let's stop pretending. Three takeaways. I thought that was enough. Okay, just real quick. I've already started talking about them, right? Number one, ask yourself, do you have somebody in your life that you can be honest with about your sin? Okay? I'm not saying you tell every single sin to every single person everywhere you go. But you ought to have some people in your life that you can be honest with, right? You ought to have people that you can say, how do you experience me? You should have somebody in your life that you give permission to point out sin in your life because you know that they love you and that they're for you and that they're angry at the lies you believe and that they're angry about anything that would keep you from being what God wants you to be. If you're married, men, husbands... That is the very definition of love that Paul gives in Ephesians 5, right? Husbands, love your wives. How? Like Christ loved the church who gave himself for her, right? He gave himself up for her. Why? To present her as a holy and radiant church without stain or blemish. That is the definition of love. Do you have somebody like that in your life? James 5 and verse 16 says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can be whole. I recently were going through officer nominations and I had a guy come to me and he said, Well, struggling with sin X keep me from being an officer. It doesn't matter what the sin I mean, it doesn't matter what the sin is, but this particular case it doesn't. Because my answer was, no, struggling with sin X will not keep you from being an officer, but struggling with sin X and not telling anybody about it will. If you're not in any position of accountability, if you're not being honest, if you're walking around saying everything's fine when in reality it's not, that'll keep you from being an officer in the church. But struggling with that particular sin won't. Let's create a community where we can do that. That means, you know what, that we've got to be gracious We can't be judgmental when people, well, I always knew she was like that. I'm glad she finally said it, right? We're going to have to be people so gripped by the grace of God, knowing that I've gotten better from him than what I deserve, that I give other people better than what they deserve. This only happens when people are full of the Spirit and great grace is upon them, like like chapter 4 and verse 33 says. Do you have people you can be honest with about you? Find a safe person like that. Community groups are a good place. Second, remember you're in a spiritual battle. Do you see Peter set that out in verse 3? He says, 
How is it that Satan has so filled your heart and that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Now, the whole book of Acts up to this point has been being full of the Holy Spirit. And now he's saying, how has Satan so filled your heart? Listen, we live in a spiritual battle, all right? It's not all the devil's fault. The world tempts us to go astray. We have fallenness in our own flesh that will take us astray. But there really is a devil, all right, who's at work. Who later, Peter, maybe thinking about this moment, later says, look, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to, de- to devour. That's First Peter 5 and verse 8. There really is a devil. I love what C.S. Lewis said, that, that there are two mistakes we can make about the devil. One is making too much of him. And sometimes people do that in our culture. There's a demon behind every bush and every bad thing that happens, oh, the devil must have done it. We can't put too much focus on him. But he said the other mistake is, is not focusing on him enough, giving him too little credit. And that's probably what we tend to in our church. We have to remember Ephesians 6 and verse 12 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against spiritual forces of evil. And their weapons are dishonesty, deceit, disintegration that that causes. We even deceive ourselves. And so the spiritual weapons we fight with are prayer and the word of God. Remember, we're in a spiritual body. That was number two. Number three. We need community. Isn't that similar to takeaway one? Yes, it is. (laughs) It's very similar. We need community. I thought it was interesting that the first time Luke uses the word church is right here in verse 11. He's written the whole gospel of Luke, five chapters of Acts, and he finally mentions church. Why does he bring that up here? Well, he brings it up because in order to avoid hypocrisy, even to avoid deceiving ourselves, to withstand our own flesh, to to withstand the assaults of the world and the devil, we need a church. We need a community of people where we can be honest. We need a community of people who are so touched by grace that we extend grace to other people and it is safe there to be honest about our sin. May God make Redeemer Church of the Shoals that kind of a church. Let's pray and ask him to do so. Heavenly Father, please come and work by your spirit. We, cannot, we are inadequate for this task. We have an enemy who prowls like a lion. There are spiritual forces at work. In addition to our own fallenness, our own weakness, our own shortcomings, we need you to come and to work. Please make this a place where we're so gripped by your grace, then we can extend that grace to other people so that this can be the kind of community that thrives and grows because we have real relationships based on real integrity with one another. Please come and do that in this place, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.